first week of May was mostly dreary and cold. But between Cinco de Mayo and Star Wars Day, there's lots to celebrate. May the 4th be with you. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. To narrow it down, there were three buckets of Antonio Brown news this week. Jury selection in the trial of Nauman Hussein began this week in Schoharie County. We'll go over the latest developments. It's very interesting. It seems like almost everyone that they come across had some connection. And we'll take a look back at the still unsolved case of an arson in Schenectady after 10 years. The story of 438 Hewlett Street has not come to an end yet. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, now let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again, as we are every week, with Casey Seiler, the editor-in-chief of the Times Union. We're going to talk about our top headlines uh, here. Let's start with another story about former Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, The women who accused him of harassment are now being subpoenaed to testify in the case of a female troopers lawsuit. What's going on there? The women who um, spoke to the attorney general about alleged sexual harassment, as well as other forms of sexual misconduct by the former governor, um, many of them, not all of them, um, received subpoenas from Cuomo's uh, defense team in the civil suit that was brought by a female Um, state trooper, um, now uh, an investigator, who uh, served on the executive detail, basically the the gubernatorial um, protection detail, and says that the governor subjected her to workplace harassment. Because her attorney included all of the claims that were detailed in the report prepared by investigators working for the state attorney general, in 2021, those additional claims, in other words, beyond those of the woman who is known as Trooper One, are now subject to, you know, depositions, questioning by the the governor's legal team. And I would note here that the state attorney general's office lost its effort to um, get the state out of paying for the governor's defense in this civil case. In other words, New York taxpayers will be on the hook for every billable hour of all of those depositions and all of the the legal action that, that emerges therefrom. All of these women have made their claims, told their stories 
you know, in sworn testimony from the investigators uh, uh, that were that were brought aboard to do the investigation by the attorney general's office in 2021. But of course, Cuomo's legal team says that those investigators failed to dig into um, other issues that should have been asked. They have made those arguments in in legal filings before. But what it does mean is that women who claim they were sexually harassed by Andrew Cuomo, they're all going to be subject to questioning from a lawyer representing their alleged harasser. All right. That's a big story for our Capitol Bureau this week. Check out the New York State section of timesunion.com for more on that. But I do want to move on to the story or series of stories, I guess, stories that just keep on coming that have really, really driven up our traffic on our website this week. And that is stories involving Antonio Brown, former NFL superstar and owner, question mark, of the Albany Empire football team. What just just tell us what happened with him this week. Where to begin? We are trying to keep this podcast to what? Three, four hours? Um, <laughs> yes. To narrow it down, there were three buckets of Antonio Brown news this week. One involved the actual management of the Albany Empire Arena League football team. There was um, a dispute over late payments, at least some, if not all of those payments were cleared up uh, after the weekend, but it did cause much agitad. The team lost their away game last weekend, and there was allegedly an altercation on the bus coming back that resulted in a police report and the separation of the second coach, if memory serves, that the team has had this season. And then on Wednesday, Antonio Brown was there to introduce the original coach who was canned a couple of weeks ago, who is now back on the job. The team is still um, down a couple of players, but apparently the players that remain have been paid. So that's bucket one. Bucket two from Wendy Libertor uh, was uh, a local uh, realtor who uh, said that Antonio Brown and another high net worth individual are a apparently in negotiation to purchase the Saratoga Springs home, better known as Palazzo Righi, the home that that is currently owned by Michelle Righi, the widow of uh, local businessman Ron Righi, uh, who died last year. A great big, very famous, intriguing, uh, let's say, Italianate home. And it is currently on the market. The price is down. It's now $12 million. We will see what happens there. Bucket number three, and like bucket number one, this is one that has been reported on by Abigail Rebell of our outstanding sports department, involves the question of just how exactly Antonio Brown owns the Albany Empire. Now, we, we have to back up a little and note that Antonio Brown claimed um, about a month ago that he was the 100% owner of the empire. That turned out not to be the case then or now. At that point, he apparently owned 47.5% of the team. Um, Mike Quarta, who owned another 47.5%, sold him his share on, I believe it was April 19th, for the sum of $1. 
leaving AB, as he is known as the 95% owner of the team, along with uh, what I'm sure is a lovely couple named the Von Schillers. We have been at the Times Union describing him as an owner, the majority owner of the team. His camp, not long after this uh, deal with my quarter went through, reached out to say, hey, you know, technically speaking, he's not the owner of the team. <laughs> um, the way they explain this is that the team is owned by Antonio L. Allah Express Trust Enterprise, um, which is, of course, a, uh, a different entity and that Brown himself, meaning the human being, two arms, two legs, one head, um, has no personal ownership or control over the team. Only slightly confusing. Uh, oh, no, it gets more confusing because what they say is that there is actually an individual known as Antonio L. Allah who does, in fact, have command and control and um, that the, the Antonio L. Allah Express Trust Enterprise is the domestic arm of another entity called the Antonio L. Allah Express Trust. And apparently there is yet a third business entity that is known as Big Boomin Investment Company, LLC, which is apparently registered in Dubai that has uh, some stake or is somehow connected to the two other entities. Here, we are at something of a disadvantage because Antonio Brown's camp provided Abigail with a letter that said, among other things, that Antonio Brown is a foreign national, but not a citizen of the United States at birth. What? He appears to be. He was born in Miami, Florida, which just as you may know, is part of the United States. Been that way for a long time. Yeah, yeah, for several centuries now. And he was born to two, as far as I know, U.S. citizens, which makes him a U.S. citizen. All of the questions that are likely swimming around in your head, we, Abigail, has presented to Antonio Brown's camp. She was there on Wednesday at this press conference where <laughs> Abigail asked him, for example, who is Antonio L. Allah? Brown's response was, that's a good question, but he would not answer it or any other questions about ownership saying that he wanted to focus on the team. Well, that's fine, but um, they came, and this is not a jackpot that Abigail put herself in. They mm -hmm. came to us with this letter disputing the way that we have been characterizing his ownership of the team. We have presented that their case and we have raised the questions that emerge therefrom. They are not answering them, at least not to this point. Abigail will continue to dig on this because she's a good reporter. We have heard complaints from the team that we, we thought she had the best the, the team's best interests at heart. Mm. My response was she's a journalist. You brought this information to her. She is doing her best to make sense of it. And she will continue to. And it is no easy feat. It is bewildering. It might be the word that I would think of. Um, so finally, uh, I want to talk about the trial that is underway in Schoharie County this week. The trial of Nauman Hussein, who is charged with uh, second degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide in the deaths of 20 people when a limo crashed in Schoharie County in 2018. 
Larry Rulison has been covering it all week. We are going to have you talk to him in just a couple of minutes. But do you want to kind of introduce what folks need to know about what happened this week? Sure. I mean, this is a long-awaited chapter in the story of the Schoharie limo crash, which, of course, occurred on October 6, 2018. It became clear that bureaucratic indolence by um, several state agencies helped to allow that vehicle to stay on the road. That has been the conclusion of both federal and state investigations now. In addition to that, the, the man who is the only person who stands charged in this matter, Nauman Hussein, the operator of Prestige Limousine, his father, a gentleman named Shahed Hussein, um, was a longtime undercover counterterrorism asset for the FBI. So the the breach and the scope and the complexity of this case is something that has fueled the reporting specifically of Larry Rulison, who writes for our business department um, for uh, four and a half years now. And I could not think of anybody better suited to be covering the, the trial of Nauman Hussein, which once again, you know, we've mentioned this on the show before, comes after his guilty plea was invalidated by a judge who took over the case because the previous judge had retired. And to say that, you know, this this trial is long awaited by the families of the dead is um, underplaying it without a doubt. You know, it, it is a very expensive project um, for any media entity to cover a trial gavel to gavel. But in this case, uh, it's easy to say that it is well worth it. We've done that before. In, for example, the federal trial of Joe Prococo, former Governor Cuomo's top aide, of course, in the trial of um, Keith Raniere, the leader of Nexium, we have been there day in and day out. And this is another trial where Larry and because it's going to be a long haul, likely other reporters will um, will be there. Absolutely. All right. We are going to dive right into your conversation with Larry about what happened in court this week. Thank you so much for joining us, Casey. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. So, Larry, tell us a bit about how the process has gone so far as county court in Schoharie tries to filter through what are going to be hundreds of local residents to find somebody who can remain objective as a juror in, uh, I think it's fair to say, the most high profile criminal case in that county in a generation. Yeah. The last few days, jury selection has been going painfully slow. A lot of the potential jurors that have been called know the witnesses that are going to be called or maybe called in this case, that keeps happening more than even people who have made up their mind from media coverage and things like that. It seems to me it's the interpersonal relationships of this small uh, rural county and community that's like causing jury selection to go so slowly. Almost every time a new juror, uh, potential juror is uh, called into the box, to be questioned by the judge, very often they know one of the potential witnesses. I, I mean, beyond that, kind of knowing the witnesses, how are each side 
quizzing the jurors if they if they sure. sort of get past that bar. In other words, are they sure. have they ever been in a car crash? Have they ever been in a stretch limo? I I, I don't know what sort of what sort of questions are are being presented to those who sort of pass the the first hurdle of whether or not they know any of the witnesses. Yeah, it's very interesting. So the the prosecution, they're mostly trying to get assurances from those jurors who've uh, made it through the initial questioning by the judge uh, that they can be impartial and that they can take the testimony of people like law enforcement or auto mechanics or auto experts, that they can listen to that testimony and believe that those people are telling the truth. Fred Wrench, who's the special prosecutor for Harry County District Attorney Susan Mallory, he's been leading the uh, voir dire questioning. He always asks these jurors, can you, at the end of the day, find this person guilty if you find, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt that they are guilty from the evidence? And he makes them say guilty. And he goes all the way down the line and they go guilty, 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 guilty. It's sort of very dramatic. And it seems very effective. And then uh, Lee Kinlan, who's the uh, attorney for Nauman Hussein, he'll come up and he'll kind of laugh, say, oh boy, that was impressive. And then he gets them to go, he, listen, if you do not find any element of this case isn't proven, you have a duty to say not guilty. And he makes them say not guilty. They go down the line. But mostly what I found is Lee Kinlan, the defense, has been trying to uh, see if each juror um, has the ability to not believe someone or poke holes in their testimony. Are you a critical thinker? Can you think on your own? And will you not just go along with the prosecution? So it's been very interesting. I get this feeling that the defense wants people who are independent-minded and maybe uh, have never had to work for law enforcement. Maybe they, they work with their hands. Maybe they do a lot of their own work on their cars, things like that. That seems to be the type of juror that the defense wants, someone that can kind of uh, listen to their side of the argument. Whereas in terms of the prosecution, they seem to want uh, women with children and uh, especially young children. And maybe they work in like a hospital or somewhere where uh, you have to adhere to rules all the time. And maybe you've maybe seen some injuries and things like that as part of their job. And, and so it's been very interesting to see what type of jurors each side wants to have at the end of the day. Uh, this might be a silly question, but has a single juror out of the scores that have filed through so far said that they weren't really familiar with the Sco uh, Harry limo crash, the basic events? No, that has been amazing. Even people that say they uh, rarely watch, watch TV or, or consume the news media, they've all known about it. A lot of people were like emotionally overcome having to answer questions about it. In a lot of cases, though, it was because they were near the crash scene that day or they knew someone that was near the crash scene that day. Things like that. It's very interesting. It seems like almost everyone that they come across had some connection. The only people like that didn't were people that maybe moved here from out of town mm. in the last few years, but they still knew about it. They might have come from California, but they knew about it because of the national news coverage. 
as we are talking midway through Thursday, there have been seven jurors seated so far. They've got to get, uh, is it 16, 12 jurors plus four alternates? Is that correct? That is right. So let's estimate, do you think it is likely that they will get through that? We're really talking about next week for wrapping this up, most likely. Yes. Uh, they're about to go this afternoon to start questioning those 16 jurors that have been put in the in the box, the potential jurors. You know, if they got one, two, or three, that would be progress. So they've gone through a, more than half, about 50 of the 90 people that were in this second pool of potential jurors. So I am not thinking that they're going to be done this week at all. Let's say they do start next, perhaps Tuesday or Wednesday with opening arguments. Uh, you noted this in the the setup story you wrote um, for last Sunday's print edition. There's what might be called the Takapina factor. Joe Takapina, who is one of certainly the most high profile member of Nauman Hussein's defense team, is currently the lead defense attorney on the civil suit brought against former President Donald Trump by Eugene Carroll, who has alleged that uh, Mr. Trump raped her uh, at Bergdorf Goodman in the mid-90s. That trial, from what we are given to understand, is likely to also wrap up in the coming days, perhaps by Monday, and then depending on how long the, the jury in that civil case is out, it is very possible, it would seem, that Joe Tacopina could make it for opening arguments in Schoharie. Is, uh, do you get a sense from the defense that they're, that they're expecting that or that he's going to miss the first couple of days? Yeah, I, I haven't talked to uh, Lee Kinlan, Nowlin's attorney, about that uh, recently or today, but uh, you know, the judge keeps mentioning that Joe Takapino and his, one of his law partners, uh, Chad Siegel, will be at the trial. I don't know if he said for opening statements, but after the jury process was over. So I would expect him to be there, but I haven't heard much talk about it otherwise, except the judge just keeps mentioning it. So I don't think the jurors won't be surprised when it happens, when Joe and Chad show up. A last question for you. How would you describe the the sort of media presence there? Is it is it mainly regional media or are there national outlets there as well? You know, we are, of course, talking during jury selection. So the gang, uh, as it were, might not all be assembled to cover the trial itself. On day one, there was one national writer, uh, Ben Howe, who is a freelancer who wrote the New York Magazine article on the case that uh, got a lot of attention. But otherwise, it's been all local media, a lot of TV, but the the TV people kind of come in and out. Otherwise, it's uh, a couple of print journalists like me at the Gazette Reporter, and we're, we've been here for the duration. But otherwise, the TV cameras will set up during the breaks outside, and it's kind of cool seeing all the TV cameras and then Lee Kinlan can never read his lunch because they want to grab him for interviews during the uh, lunch break and also afterwards. Uh, this is a, the first step in demonstrating that he is not guilty of the charges and that other people uh, bear responsibility. You know, Mavis in the state of New York, we've said from day one, 
uh, should be here, but they're not. And um, unfortunately, we feel like this is the weaponization of the criminal justice system. And they're going to fit the facts to try and convict one man when uh, other people should be here. Uh, but I would expect that when opening statements happen, there's going to be probably double the amount of media, maybe more than that. And the court has been getting ready for that, setting up contingency plans, and they've created this overflow room uh, where people can go, uh, especially uh, uh, when it gets very crowded because the families haven't come yet. And um, that'll definitely change the whole dynamic, I think. Well, Larry, uh, thanks a lot for for being there and for all the good work. Um, you mentioned Ben Howe's piece. We've discussed it on this podcast before. It's an outstanding piece and and does a very good job describing what your work has uh, meant on this story. I'm glad you're there. Thanks. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com or on any of our social channels. After the break... We'll look back at a 10-year-old unsolved arson that made national news. It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Available now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's go back about 10 years now and talk about a tragic arson and a warning to listeners that, like the Schoharie limo crash story, the details of this one may also be disturbing. So listen with care. In the early morning hours of May 2nd, 2013, a fire destroyed a house in Schenectady's Hamilton Hill neighborhood. It killed a 32-year-old man and three of his very young children. His eldest child, a five-year-old, survived, though she was badly burned on most of her body. Police quickly determined that it was arson. The case came under federal jurisdiction, but 10 years later, there's still no official culprit. That doesn't mean people aren't suspects and other people didn't go to jail for crimes related to it. To say it's a long and complicated story is an understatement. Times Union reporter Robert Gavin has spent a considerable amount of time delving back into this case, and he published a comprehensive look back at it this week. I connected with him to hear more. 
So you have a lot of adults and a lot of children living in the same house. It's a sort of cast of characters that it's not always easy to kind of remember who's who and whatnot. But the one way I can describe it is just to sort of very quickly get into the main players. David Terry is 32 years old. David Terry is living with his God. His oldest daughter is Sapphire. She is five years old at the time. He's also raising Lyat Terry, Michael Terry, Leia's three, Michael Terry's two. Donovan Duel is only 11 months. Leia, Michael, and Donovan, as well as their father, all die in this fire. There's other people living in the house, a couple of adults. One of them is a woman named Jenica Duell, who is the mother of the children. You have a situation where there was a guy named Robert Butler who lived in the house, and he was involved with Jenica. So to summarize what happened, a fire breaks out at this house in the early morning on May 2nd. David, Terry, and three of his children are killed. His oldest daughter, Sapphire, is pulled out alive, but she's been really badly burned. She does survive, though. And as a side note here, a viral Facebook post in 2015 brought national attention to this case. Sapphire briefly became famous when she asked people to send her Christmas cards. She got notes from all over the country, all over the world, most notably from President Barack Obama, from Beyonce and Katy Perry, and that's just naming a few. Sapphire was very badly disfigured by the fire, but by all accounts, she seems to be doing well now, 10 years later. It's really a miracle that somehow she was able to survive this god-awful ordeal. Let's talk about the fire. Investigators determined pretty quickly that this was the case of arson, right? Not an accident, like an electrical fire or something like that. And because of this, ATF got involved. And then the investigators and the local investigators eventually handed it over to the feds. So how did the investigation get started? What were the initial findings? This was going to be what's known as a suspicious fire and ultimately ruled an arson. Within the 24 hours of the fire, it was after 4 a.m. This started about... You had Schenectady firefighters there. You had the uh, HEF, which is, and they were interviewing people um, as this was considered a very suspicious fire. The victims were upstairs. They lived upstairs. They would eventually find out that someone had poured gasoline on their fire. It's extremely scary to this community and the capital region that what happened. Someone set a fire here, killed four people, horrific incident. And the question is who would actually do this? And the reality is this is a question that 10 years later, the authorities are not going to have an answer to, even though at one point they thought they did. Exactly. Within a month of the fire, someone was charged with the crime, right? On the night of the fire, you have interviews. The Schenectady police and the ATF agents are speaking to people who they believe are people of interest in the fire. That includes a Jenica Duell, a guy named Brian Fish, who was 18 years old at the time. He was, according to the feds, he was he was a member of the quote unquote uh, Juggalos, bands of the insane clown posse, and he was interviewed along with Duel, along with other people on the street. And what happens is. Schenectady police and ATF 
have a suspicion that Robert Butler set this fire. So, okay, this is where the cast of characters starts to get a little confusing. Uh, Robert Butler is Jenica Jewell's boyfriend at the time, and he was living at the house on Hewlett Street with Jenica, David Terry, and the children. They're going to find out early on that not long before the fire, David Terry had kicked Robert Butler out of the house because he believed he put his hands on uh, Janica. He thought he had gotten you know violent with her and kicked him out of the house. According to the complaint that would later be filed against Butler, they felt he was mad and wanted uh, revenge against David Terry or we're going to put a scare into David Terry. And at this point, both Jenica Duell and Brian Fish, the juggalo whom you mentioned earlier, they name Robert Butler as the suspect. Those are two very, very key interviews. And in both cases, they're like, look, we were in Saratoga Springs the whole time. We were not here. But the feds and the Scantity police don't believe that. They think that they had come down the night before with Butler in a car and that Butler set the fire. The initial version of events is they come down, they stop at a gas station on Broadway and Schenectady. They fill up a water bottle, so to speak, with like a, or, or a container with gasoline, and that's what's used. But under questioning by authorities, Jenica Duell changes her story, right? Jenica, again, initially, she's just like, look, I wasn't there. And then when they start talking about do this for your kids, you're not going to see her again. She basically says, look, I'll say what you want me to say. You know, I'm in this for my kids. And then she starts giving details. She starts saying that essentially father said something like, do you want to be free? And then she's like, yes. And then he lit the fire. Brian Fish initially tells the detectives, look, I was in Saratoga Springs the whole time. I was not here. An ATF agent comes in the room and says, hey, just so you know, and this is a, a, a rude, this is not what actually happened, but this is what he tells Fish. A reporter in Schenectady took a picture of you outside the, the house with a firewall. Well, then Fish was 18. You know, we're not dealing with someone who's necessarily used to withstanding a tough cross-examination is like, okay, well, then I was there. Now, investigators weren't able to find any proof, though, that Robert Butler, Jenica Duell, and Brian Fish were in Schenectady at the time of the fire. There was no video evidence at the gas station that they were there. But as you reported, a private investigator found evidence that they were in Saratoga Springs that morning after the fire, right? According to this private investigator and witnesses, the trio was at a Stewart's in Saratoga when the news of the fire came on a television and they jumped in a cab and headed to Schenectady. And there's a video within the security camera of the cab, basically, in which Jenica is talking about how they had received threats from someone, how Dave Terry had received threats from someone. But that doesn't come out for a while. In the early days of the fire, the case against Butler, Fish had said, oh, yeah, you know, Rob Butler was really upset at Terry because he kicked him out and he was, quote unquote, effing with uh, his and Jenica's life that Rob wanted to, quote unquote, split some wigs. But as the investigation goes on, the stories of Jenica and Brian, they start to unravel, right? Ultimately, the next day, uh, Jenica was like, look, I, I, I wasn't there, but here's the problem. She then goes back to a grand jury three weeks after the fire and tells them, yeah, I was there. So there's a lot of pressure being put on her. That's what her attorney says. In court papers, her attorney, Cheryl Coleman, had said 
the strongest among us were not going to withstand that type of pressure. And that uh, Jenica, someone who had a real troubled upbringing, drug problems, a lot of issues, Cheryl Coleman said in court papers at the time that she was had about as much chance of withstanding that as a paper airplane in a hurricane. And Brian Fish's story similarly changed when he talked to a grand jury. So fast forward to June of 2014, Robert Butler is officially charged with the arson, which, as we said before, is now under federal jurisdiction. This was an arson case, a federal arson case that results in death and injury. And that's a death penalty eligible offense. That's something that really shouldn't be lost here. So Robert Butler is indicted and he could face the death penalty if convicted. Could face the death penalty without question. The case begins to unravel quickly. And then we'll fast forward and just say that in 2014, he was cleared, right? Yeah. All I can say is that people may remember in July 2013, Janet Kadul calls the Times Union and speaks to one of our reporters, Paul Nelson, and says, look, I wasn't there. She just comes clean. I was not there. That's really the beginning of the end of this federal case against Robert Butler. Now, by this point, the feds had dropped the case against Robert Butler, and there was another name emerging as a person of interest? At some point, the name Edward Leon is going to pop up. He had been you know, accused of sending threatening text messages to David uh, Terry. Other people in the house had been getting some of these messages. Here's the connection with Edward Leon. Edward Leon lives in Montgomery County with a woman named Brianne Frolke. Brianne Frolke is going to marry David Terry. They're engaged. And what the feds don't know at the time, I think they bring him in in November to basically kind of eliminate him as a suspect, you know, because, you know, he's someone that they're saying, hey, this guy here, he's someone who uh, was threatening David uh, Terry. He tells the grand jury he was never in Schenectady that night. That's in November 2013. And that's very key because between then and January, a guy named Tip, his actual name is Thomas, Tom Kubish, known as Tip, he is a retired Albany detective, very respected detective in Albany, been around for years, involved in a whole bunch of cases in Albany. He is now, at the time, working as an investigator for the public defender's office, the federal public defender's office. He gets video from street cameras, surveillance cameras, and he finds out that Ed Leon's van is taken and seen in surveillance videos leaving the scene. He's got a pretty distinctive van. So I said, wait a minute, this guy said he wasn't in Schenectady all night, right? So then they check and they bring him back to the grand jury. And that's what he tells the grand jury. Oh, well, yeah, I, I was there, but I did go there because I, I wanted to confront David Terry. So he would eventually put himself within 50 to 60 feet of the fire and claimed he saw the fire. So we go from, oh, I wasn't there to I was there. All these people are just perjuring themselves left and right. That's exactly right. The thing to remember, as confusing as a case as it is, in some ways, there are people that will tell you it's very simple. And the very simple part of it is there's a lot of people perjuring themselves, but there's only one person who has undisputed evidence showing him there, showing his car there, and that's Ed Leon. And then they're going to find these text messages in which Ed Leon had told David Terry, you know, he was a quote unquote dead man walking, that he was not going to make it to his wedding day. 
Now we rewind. I'm going to explain the timeline here with Ed Leon. This is stuff that the feds admitted because they're going to charge him with perjury for lying to the grand jury, and he's going to get convicted and get 10 years. So the timeline is that in the summer of 2012, Ed Leon and Briani Frolke, his girlfriend, are living in their house in St. Johnsville. A person overhears him saying, he, he's known to say that if Brianna Froke ever leaves him, he's going to start a fire. I'm going to burn the house down. Fast forward six months. It's January 2013. She is now planning to leave Edward Leon because she, even though she's still living with him, she's reconnected with David Terry, who she knew when she was younger. And then they're planning to get married. This does not sit well with Ed Leon, and he is confronting David Terry on Facebook, constantly besieging him with messages, wanting to know the status of the relationship. At one point, he says to Terry, don't ever let me find you. On March 17th, that same year, so now we're about six weeks before the Hula Street fire. Remember back in 2012, Leon had been heard to say, oh, I'm going to start a fire if she ever leaves me. There's a fire in the house where he lives with Briani Frog, March 17th. It's initially, it's considered electrical in nature, but then it's going to be ruled suspicious. And there's going to be a person that said they saw him walking toward the house with a can of gas. So that Leon was spotted with a can of gas. He's never charged in that case. But you have this promise to burn a house down if she ever leaves him. She's leaving him. Left him. There's a fire. So you have that. Then we get into April. And as the time is getting closer to this fire in Schenectady, the messages are continuing to come for David Terry from Ed Leon, who is using a, a secret phone in which he refers to himself as, quote unquote, the undertaker. And this is where he's telling him, you know, you're a dead man walking. And at one point he's like, look, I, I want to talk to him, settle this once and for all. So that's the days leading up to this fire. And then all of a sudden that morning, he admits he is on the street within 50, 60 feet of the fire. What came up during the perjury case is that the prosecutors, when they convicted him of uh, perjury, the jury was up for an hour. It was a quick, quick deliberation. There wasn't even an opening statement. And I can tell you, someone who's been covering courts a long time, that is really rare for a defendant to not give an opening statement. He lied to the grand jury. It's pretty obvious he did. He was never, he has never been- Never been charged. Of anything to do with this fire. That's right. He's never charged anything other than perjury. He tells the judge, Gary Sharp, because all I did is lie to the grand jury and the police. I had nothing to do with the fire. Gary Sharp says, doesn't miss a beat and says, okay, yeah, I believe that as about as much as I believe anything else you told the grand jury and wow. police. And later says that Jenica Dool said in saying there was, quote unquote, no doubt in my mind Leon was involved. This is a federal judge. He's someone who was the chief judge of the Northern District. And he's basically saying, you did it. So you mentioned Jenica Duell's sentencing there. At this point, Jenica Duell and Brian Fish are also convicted of perjury. They lied to the grand jury and they were sent to prison. Jenica Duell got more than 11 years. She got more time than, than a Leon. I mean, a Leon got convicted of two counts. And he got 10 years, which was the max. Judge Sharp said if he could charge him to more, he would have. That was the statutory max. Mm -hmm. Brian Fish got nine years. Um, they're all out. Fish is in a halfway house in the Pittsburgh area, but they're all out. In the sentencing memo, this is where it gets really bizarre. In, in, in the sentencing memos, the feds would say 
on one hand, they were like, well, you know, this person's lie let Robert Butler stay in jail for eight months. And then on another hand, they're still calling them suspects in the arson and homicide. And then they admitted that Leon was a suspect in the arson homicide. So if you look at each of those sentencing recommendations, they're saying there's evidence each one of those people is involved. If you just take that at face value, what they're really saying is, well, Leon's a suspect, Jules a suspect, Fish is a suspect. Are you trying to say that they were all in cahoots together? Privately, I there are people who, who investigated the case who have said to me, oh, you know, I've said to me, oh, you know, we know things you don't know. And my question that is always, well, what? Where is it? The story of 438 Hewlett Street has not come to an end yet. That story remains unfinished. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Larry Rulison, and Rob Gavin for their contributions to this episode.